Thanks, Andrew. How many of you are thinking about the fact that Andrew and I wore almost the exact same shirt right now? A lot of, yeah, a lot of you are. Yep. I'm glad you're honest. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel, and uh, I serve here on the Leewood staff of Christ Community. And uh, if you have been with us over the past few weeks, we've been in this series entitled Neighborly Love, uh, where we're trying to see how the Bible widens our understanding of how our contribution in the world and our work, whether paid or unpaid, whether in the home or outside the home, how that work is directly connected to the ways in which we love and care for our neighbors. And, and what I'd like to do this morning as we jump into this, this message, I want to do some mind reading, uh, and I want to do some word, not real mind reading, just to be clear, but uh, just some uh, word association. There are certain words that kind of conjure up certain images, and when I say the word boss, I'm sure there are certain pictures that come to mind. Uh, and so I thought I'd just see if some of you, maybe you thought of uh, the boss from Office Space. This is the first one I, I was thinking of. You think of a boss that doesn't care about you. You're just a cog in a machine, uh, just in existence to make the boss wealthier. Did anybody think of Office Space? Just curious. Good, I didn't think so. I'm one, I'm one for one. Uh, or some of you are like, you know what? I didn't think about that. I'm a big Dukes of Hazard fan. I was thinking more Boss Hog. Uh, maybe you thought of Boss Hog from Dukes of Hazard. Did anybody think of Boss Hog? There was one. All right, thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. Okay, okay. I didn't think there would be more than that. Good. I'm two for two. Uh, some of you are, you know, you're, I'm a red blooded American, born in the USA. I'm thinking Boss Bruce Springsteen. That's what you're thinking. So that's maybe your picture of the boss. Who is Bruce Springsteen? There we go. We've got some Bruce Springsteen fans. Uh, but I'm guessing the majority of us, this is where my mind reading skills come in hand, thought of this when we thought of boss. Remember when people used to say boss when they were describing something that was really cool? Like, those shoulder pads are really boss, man. Look at that perm. That perm is so boss. It's what made me want to become a boss. And I looked so good in permanent shoulder pads. But now boss is just slang for jerk in charge. <laughs> How many of us thought of Michael Scott? There we go. There we go. There's more of you. So now, now if, if you have you know, been in work, if you've had a boss before, I mean, it's, it's probably not hard to imagine how your boss has a direct impact on your level of both enjoyment in your work as well as meaning that you find in your work. Uh, and whether that boss is, is a boss at work or it's a coach on a sports team, it's a, it's a teacher, it's a parent, our bosses have the ability to dictate and influence how we find joy and meaning in our work. You can imagine working for a boss who is very overbearing, uh, who micromanages you, who is very distrusting and doesn't really recognize your work. That that can be very deflating and that, that can create a work environment that is just completely void of joy and meaning. On the flip side, you can imagine a boss who you work for who cares about you, who's invested in you, who knows your name, uh, who recognizes your work and celebrates it, actually looks at you and sees a human being. That kind of boss can instill both a joy in what we do and helps us see meaning in what we do. And, and I remember this, uh, the first time I had a really sour experience with a coach, uh, I tried out for basketball in eighth grade, and I, I didn't make the team, which was devastating, but I came back the next year and tried out, made it through all four days of tryouts, got cut again, which was just sad in of itself, but I found out that on the last day of tryouts, two kids 
Chad Condor and Jack Fritz, I don't think they're here, but uh, they made the team on the last day of tryouts, and the coach brought them on, and it was the first time I remember feeling, feeling and experiencing injustice, like, this is wrong, and it actually kept me from playing basketball. I stopped playing basketball. The world has been robbed of my gift of basketball because of that, <laughs> and I've tried to play again, and some of you guys that play on Monday nights on occasion know that that's not a gift anymore. It is a curse. It very much is. I'm not good with spheres. Um, but I say that to show that we do have, we all can imagine how bosses impact our work. And what I want us to look at this morning, I want to ask a question that may sound cheesy at first, but I think there's some depth to it. And the question is, what does it look like to imagine that, that God is our boss? What would life look like? What would our work look like if we saw God as our boss? And, and I don't think that's much of a stretch from what Paul is teaching in Colossians 3. Uh, when, when, we, when you understand the context, Paul's writing to the Colossians, and he's imploring them, encouraging them to see their work, to pursue their work, as unto the Lord, not unto men, seeking the approval of God and not others. This is the motivation behind their work, regardless of what it is. And, and to be clear, Paul is specifically speaking to people who have found themselves in indentured servanthood, a job that they don't want, that is very uh, meaningless to them, and is void of joy. And Paul is saying to them, in their job, to do what they do heartily as unto the Lord, even though they may find no joy or meaning in it. Paul implores them to work as unto the Lord and not to men. And so it does lead us to ask this question, how would we view our work, how would we go about doing our work, whether paid or unpaid, whether in the home, outside the home, if we saw God as our ultimate boss? And what I think uh, would change, many things would change, but I want to suggest three things specifically that would be redefined if God were our boss. And those things are our status quo, our understanding of sacred work, and our understanding of success. The status quo, sacred work, and success. The first is this idea of status quo. And what I mean by that is that it, it's not uncommon to find people, both in the church, outside the church, who view their work purely from the perspective of just making money, that my job exists purely to make money, to make myself wealthy, to make other people wealthy, that our work has less to do with contribution and is primarily about compensation. And, or, or as one, one uh, current band, one of my favorite bands are called Phantom Planet. They actually have a song called Making a Killing. And they, they describe this, that our job isn't even about making a living, it's about making a killing. They say, you'll have to answer up for what you want and what that means. That's the difference between, making the, uh, between breaking the bank and just breaking even, making a living, and making a killing. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with making profit. Much good can come from being profitable, which we'll talk about here in a second. But we must recognize, and I, and I think we would all agree, that to work exclusively for the purpose of making money is hollow at best or destructive at worst. That there's something about that that is just empty to us. And if God were our boss, I believe it would change the way in which we look at our status quo, meaning that the status quo is work exists to make money and that's it. And I believe that if we saw God as our boss, we would have to ask ourselves this question, regardless of what our work is, regardless of where our sphere of influence is, we would have to ask ourselves this question, does my work hurt or help my neighbor? Does my work, either directly or indirectly, hurt or help my neighbor? 
And I think to, to gain some guidance for how we ask this question, because it's not meant to be a simple question, like, does my work help or hurt my neighbor? Uh, no, it, it helps them. Done. Move on. Like, it has to be, we need to have some more time devoted to this question. And so to give us some guidance, I would suggest we look at the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs particularly speaks to this issue of, of finance, of stewardship, of generosity, and particularly how it relates to our interactions with others. And so I want to look briefly, we're going to kind of jump around a lot in Proverbs, uh, so exercise your thumbs here, Uh, but Proverbs 11, verses 1 through 3, we see this understanding of our work and its connection to our neighbors. Proverbs 11, verses 1 through 3 says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Now, if you'll notice, there's this imagery or this this reference to scales and balances, which we don't really use all that often today. Uh, But scales and balances, they were vitally important to matters of transaction and trade because the scales helped determine something's value and worth. And as you're trading and, and exchanging in the marketplace, the scales were needed to establish one's good to know what it was worth so that you knew what to trade for. And, and like today, it was not uncommon to find people who would tip the scales in their favor to advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. This was done by tampering with the scale or altering the weights so that the, the value of a good was altered so that one person is advantaged at the expense of another. Now, one point of note here is that we see that the scriptures are actually affirming the value of of private property, the goodness of private property, and thus the the protection and the promotion of protecting those rights of people's property. Because, I mean, if you look at it, the, the very act of abusing the scales alters the value of one's good or their property. And by one altering the scale, it's changing that person's property and it results in them being disadvantaged and someone else benefiting from that unjust action. And we see from Proverbs that this is clearly this kind of manipulative and dishonest form of business and transaction is offensive to God deeply, not just because it creates relational and economic discord, but because it is contrary to his very nature as God. That's what Proverbs 16 verse 11 makes very clear. A just balance... And scales, there's that reference to the balance and scales. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. This passage shows us that the principles of economic equity and justice and and right transaction, these are rooted and derived from God Himself. That this is why we engage in, uh, or this is why when we engage in unethical or unjust business practices, God is angered. And if God is our boss, we should be angry at that as well. And and that's a question we should ask ourselves. Do we find ourselves getting angry when we hear about, when we witness and observe people who engage in unjust business actions and transactions? Do we get angry at the things that God gets angry at? Or do we expend our, our anger points on things that really don't matter to the point that we don't have enough anger, emotion, righteous anger to be angry at the things that God is truly angry at. We need to see that this is offensive to God, not just because it breaks down the economy, but because it is a a, a distortion of his own very nature. So if God is our boss, then our status quo must change. 
Our status quo must be redefined in light of who God is and in light of our understanding of how our work is connected to the way in which we love and care for our neighbors. And this will have many implications and applications for us. I just want to highlight two. When our status quo is changed, when we move from just saying, I work to make money, two things change. And the first is this, that we will avoid doing any work that hurts our neighbors. We will avoid doing any work that hurts our neighbors, whether directly or indirectly. Proverbs 14.21 makes this clear for us. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Now, if you notice in this passage, it's not just, it's not just good enough to avoid doing harm in our work. I mean, I think we can all know that, like, I shouldn't do harm in my work. I shouldn't, like, clearly, directly hurt people in what I do. But, but what we see in Proverbs is that we should also seek to do good in our work, to not just refrain from doing harm, but to do good in what we do. It is a both-and mindset. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen 16 uh, goes on to say as well that whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. If God is our boss, then we won't step on our neighbors in order to advance ourselves, our career, our financial status. If we live by the mantra, I will do whatever it takes, we will find ourselves very easily becoming people who take whatever we want. When we live by that mantra, I'll do whatever it takes to advance and progress, we will find ourselves very easily and naturally becoming people that take whatever we want. And in this way of working, in this way of looking at our contribution to the world, we will find that we're actually not interested in contribution or even compensation. We're just interested in domination. We're just interested in being the best over everyone else. And that is what true pride is. C.S. Lewis once said that that pride is not the desire to be pretty, to be smart, to be wealthy. It's the desire to be prettier, smarter, wealthier than someone else. That you don't even delight in the thing, in the gift, in the ability. You just delight in the fact that you're better than others. And when we see work in this way, it is very destructive not only to our neighbors, but to ourselves as well. In his book, The, The Fabric of This World, Lee Hardy offers some questions for us to kind of consider as we think about our work and the connection it has to our love for our neighbors. And he says this, simply having the Christian attitude is not enough. One must also take into consideration the social content of one's work. And he offers these questions. Am I, in my job, making a positive contribution to community? Am I helping to meet legitimate needs? Am I somehow enhancing what is true, what is noble, what is worthy in human life? If God is our boss, we should, we should take time to ask ourselves these questions in regards to our role as students in school, in regards to our work in the home, outside the home. We should consider these questions. And when we understand that our work is for our neighbor, we will be less, we will be less naturally operating from a position of, of prideful production, and we will find ourselves more likely operating from a standpoint of compassionate contribution. And and this, I think, will diminish the desires to advance ourselves at the expense of stepping on our neighbors and seeing them as stepping stones to our goal. Now, like I said, when the status quo changes, it changes our implications for how we look at work. It changes the way in which we look at our neighbors. But the second implication is this, is that we will be okay with losing for the good of our neighbor. 
when we understand that our work is for our neighbor, we will also be okay losing for the good of our neighbor. It's not enough just to, to avoid harm in our work and to do good in our work, but we should also, in some instances, it's appropriate and necessary to be disadvantaged and inconvenienced for the sake of our neighbor. This is not a pattern for every actual decision that we make in work, whatever it may be, but we should be willing and okay at some point to be disadvantaged so that others might be advantaged. Bruce Waltke, he's he's an Old Testament theologian, and he offers this great definition of the righteous and the wicked person in in, in the Bible. And if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's a constant theme, the comparison and contrast of the, of the wicked person and the righteous person. And Proverbs particularly addresses that. And Waltke says this, the righteous, so whenever you see the word righteous in the Bible, think of this person, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, do I find myself more naturally disadvantaging others so that I might be advantaged? Or do I find myself being willing and okay with being disadvantaged at times so that others might be advantaged? It's a great question for us to ask. A friend and actually a member of Christ's community was telling me recently about a business opportunity that they were presented, and, and he is his business partner, uh, they, a company came to them and asked them to work with them to build a product, and, and, and my friends decided to, to decline this opportunity. Uh, as, the, as they learned more about this company and the product that they wanted to make, they just didn't feel good about it, and, and they, they saw a very real potential social divide uh, taking place. Um, if this product were to come into existence, and so they turned it down, which, which is noble in and of itself that they would operate from a place of conviction, but it came at a time when they were really in need of work, where they needed revenue to come in to pay for their employees. I mean, it was, a, it was kind of a scary situation for them. They chose to follow convictions about work rooted in the nature of God that, was, that had the mindset of caring for our neighbors all factored in, and they said, you know what, we're going to turn this down because We don't want to be advantaged at the sake of others being disadvantaged because of something we did. If God is our boss, then we have a new paradigm, a new lens through which to see our work. And it it means that it will change not only what we do, but how we do it and why we do it. When God is our boss, it redefines our status quo. But secondly, it also redefines our understanding of sacred work, of sacred work. People both inside the church and outside the church have kind of adopted this this mindset that there is good Christian work that pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers do, and then there's kind of secondary work that people do out in the marketplace to fund the real important work of missionaries and pastors. And and this dichotomy, this, this unnecessary and indeed unbiblical division has resulted in the majority of people in the church feeling like second-class citizens about the majority of what they do with their lives, namely their work, whether paid or unpaid, in the home, outside the home. And I think this is not how God, this is not how God views work. He does not see a dichotomy or or a hierarchy, as one author put it. There's no hierarchy in uh, vocations in God's economy, particularly for, for one reason, because all workers regardless of the commas and zeros on their paycheck, are made in the image of God. And Proverbs 22.2 makes this abundantly clear. 
The rich and the poor meet together in this. The Lord is the maker of them all. The rich and the poor meet together in this. The Lord is the maker of them all. There's no vocational hierarchy in God's economy, but yet we see this vocational hierarchy. We see this division in the church and outside the church. And it has resulted in a serious division that has led people, like I said, to say, what I do with the majority of my life is not as important as what pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers do. Your work matters to God because it matters to your neighbor. As Martin Luther said, that that God does not need your good works, but your neighbor indeed does. There's a story I came across kind of in preparing for this sermon about a couple, Doug and Karen, and Karen had uh, cancer and needed surgery to remove a tumor. And Doug was kind of reflecting on all the things that had to take place for this surgery uh, to happen, and, and he, he reflects in this way. It says, Doug marveled at the level of technology now available and the wide variety of products and services that had to be coordinated for Karen's treatment to be effective. He noted the imaging machines, the software needed to run them, the electrical components necessary to run the computers and the service technicians who kept them running effectively. He also was struck by the way that business had made these products available to the physicians so that they could be used to diagnose and treat Karen's tumor. And here's, here's the kicker. He says, he, he commented in the aftermath of her treatment, I'm sure glad these people didn't feel called to leave their business to serve the Lord. I, I say this, and I, and I realize that's, this is probably a bit of an unfair example. Like, okay, well, you're using the example of doctors and medicine. And, that's, and that is important work, clearly. We're saving lives. But I share this story as a, as a way to broaden our imagination for how our work plays a role in serving the needs of our community and how others' work serve our needs. I, I, I don't think we have as robust of an imagination for seeing this. And I think this example of Doug and Karen just helps us see that, man, I need to pause and step back and see all of the things that contribute to my life, the benefits that I have, the thousands of people that work to make what I do and how I experience life, they make it possible. And sometimes all it takes to, to kind of broaden our imagination is to be thankful for the work that people do. I, I know that sounds really simple, but all it takes, I think, is to be thankful, and to be thankful in a specific way for how people's work contributes to our good and well-being. And I'll share a story. Uh, some of you may know this story, but I was on a plane last year from New York to, to Charlotte uh, with Pastor Joey Wilson and Chris Fernhout from our Olathe campus, and our, our plane lost cabin pressure. And we went from 30,000 feet to 10,000 feet very quickly. And it was a scary situation, to, uh, suffice it to say. And the oxygen masks come down, so you're like, okay, this is, this is real. And um, I did survive. I wanted to let you know that, just, just so you know. But we put the oxygen masks on. We, we calmed down. Things were finally okay. Uh, but as we were talking, the oxygen masks are still hanging there. And I noticed they were built or they're uh, made here in Lenexa, Kansas, which is just kind of an interesting thing. And I made a mental note of that. And then forgot about it because it seemed like a pointless piece of information. But in all honesty, in reflecting on this series and, and kind of in preparing for the sermon, I, I think God graced me with just a little bit of a wider imagination for how people's work contribute to my life. And I was reminded of this story, reminded of the oxygen mask. So I went online, looked for this company, found their name, found an email address and emailed them and just said, hey, I shared the story. I said, thank you. I just want to thank you and, and the people in your company for the work you do and arguably how it saved my life and the lives of many people. And I shared a little bit about our, our teaching series, our theology of work, 
And I thought I would just get, you know, maybe an email back or a commemorative oxygen mask to hang on my wall or something. <laughs> and and I, got, I got a voicemail and an email from the vice president of this company sincerely thanking me with just real great language of just, you have no idea how much this means to me and how much I try to instill within our employees the connection between the quality of their work and the quality of the service uh, safety products that we produce. And he said he shared it with their entire organization. And I was like, I don't know if I proofread that email, you know? I think I, think I communicated in like emojis and smiley faces and stuff, but I didn't. And then, and he actually, he's invited me to come speak to their whole company. They're all coming to Kansas City. No, 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 it's scary. I'm going to need an oxygen mask, I think, to do this. But I, I share this not to toot my own heart. I want to be careful that I'm not saying, look how thankful I am. Aren't I thankful? Now thank me for what I do. Like, that's not what I'm doing. The point of the story is to illustrate and create a sense of plausibility, of, of realistic imagination for seeing the work that people do and how it plays a part. And I actually found, I found out uh, one of our members, Aaron Dirks, he works for a company that produces, I think, the oxygen, or not produces the oxygen, I don't know the details of this, but I'll also <laughs> talk to Aaron about it. And he works for that company. There's some association. We just have no idea how gratitude for people's work instills meaning in what they do. You have no idea what that can do. And so I just encourage you to foster an imagination for how your work contributes to the needs of others as well as others and their work contributing to your needs. And as a way to kind of foster that imagination, I'd love for us to take a look at Emily Frazier and the work that she does. She's a member at our Olathe campus. And maybe after seeing what she does, we'll leave being more thankful for her contribution as well. Most of the day, um, I work around plants and trees. I work at a wholesale nursery um, out west of Olathe, and so I'm in charge of keeping track of all the health of the plants and make sure that they're sellable and um, work in day out outside, and, and it's just a great time to um, be out in God's creation. My name is Emily Frazier, and I've been going to Christ Community for three years. Even though sometimes we don't acknowledge that we work hard, we are a family. I work with some folks from Central America, so they're teaching me Spanish while I'm out there too. So it's kind of fun um, becoming bilingual and um, really becoming good friends with everyone there at work. Oftentimes we um, support each other. For example, I had a blood drive in honor of my sister in June and I had a couple of my coworkers come to that and I just felt, I just felt really awesome about that. And for a while there, there'd be a couple of weeks where I just wouldn't hear anything at all. Like I don't need a pat in the back every day, but I kind of came to realize, okay, you're not trying to please them. Like you're, you need to be working for, for God. Since I get up early, I get to um, miss most of the traffic and I also get to see the sunrise, and it's just a good time to kind of collect my thoughts and um, pray and just get kind of ready for the day. So that's, that's a boost anyway. You know, growing up on the cattle ranch, it, to me, I've learned to be a better steward of the land and um, acknowledging that this was, God built this 
and I feel being out in the nursery with all the trees knowing that hey you know God created this and this is something a gift that we can give to customers in Kansas City, Topeka, Lawrence um, to be able to share and keep that um, God's beauty spread it around. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. You can clap here. You're allowed. Hopefully, like I said, these videos we've been sharing, if you've been with us, we've tried to uh, highlight different um, people in our congregation, the work they do, not as a way to kind of promote Christ's community. It's not a commercial, but rather it is a means to to create and foster a more robust imagination for the work that people do, the work we do, as well as what others do. So, so to this point, we've seen that, that if God is our boss, it redefines our status quo, it redefines our understanding of sacred work, but lastly, it redefines our understanding of success. It changes the way we look at success. And, and what this entails, I mean, this will, this will change many things, but, but two things in particular. When our understanding of success changes, God gives us a new timeline and a new bottom line. These two things, a new timeline and a new bottom line. And what I mean by that is that, that by God giving us a new timeline, he is helping us understand that, that while it is very difficult, I mean, I'm sure we can all identify with this, that we're super impatient in things in our life, and some of us may find ourselves very impatient in the work we do, and, that, and we might be impatient because we want to see this end result of, of our work, and it's not going to come until way down the road or even after we're gone. And so sometimes our impatience has to do with wanting to see the results. Or some of us, we're just impatient because we just want to get it over with. That we want, we're, we're impatient because we just want to get to 5 o'clock, the end of the school day, the weekend, vacation, retirement, graduation, Christmas break. We just want to get there. And, and our impatience in that way shows that we look at our work as something that is to be, to be uh, we get through rather than something that we contribute through. We need to see work as not, not just something that we get through, but something that we contribute through. And, and, and God has given us this different timeline, this way of understanding our work that we should not look at it through the lens of endurance through drudgery, that I've just kind of barreled down, just finish and get it done with, but rather we should see our work through the lens and the perspective of diligence through productivity. And a few weeks ago, we talked about this idea that faithfulness and fruitfulness go hand in hand. And Proverbs 21.5 shows us this. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The point of the matter here is to see that that God places a high value on a long-term timeline that is rooted in diligence, faithfulness, and productivity. Because more can be accomplished in that way of thinking, in that way of viewing our work. As Bill Gates once said, most people overestimate what they can do in one year, and they underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And I think that is very true. And I know it can be hard for us to see that, that our work over the long haul is actually cultivating blessings for people, but we have to see that that this is the means by which God has called us to love our neighbor. And even if our work feels or, in fact, is mundane to us, our work is still valuable to God. Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian, and he, he gives us this really helpful encouragement. He says, as Christians do their mundane work, the Spirit enables them to cooperate with God in the kingdom of God, 
that completes creation and renews heaven and earth. When God is our boss, it redefines success for us by changing our timeline, that we don't have to see the end result, but we can be faithful knowing that God is at work and is using our efforts to bless and serve our neighbors. But it also brings us a new bottom line. When we understand that God is our boss, it redefines success by showing us a new bottom line. Many economists and and business strategists have have advocated in recent years for this multi-layered bottom line principle. This idea that, that we, yes, businesses should be about building financial capital and that we should be profitable, but there is also a sense in which we should be building things like human capital and social capital and environmental capital. That we should not be concerned primarily about money and being profitable, as good as that can be, we should have this three-tiered approach to a bottom line, which some people refer to as uh, profits, planet, and people. Having those three in mind as we think about our contribution, how am I being profitable, but also how am I caring for the world that God has placed me in? And how am I caring for the people I work with and I work for? Now, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that, you know, making a profit is a bad thing and it leads to greed and and that's a terrible thing in our society. Businesses need to be profitable in order for them to do good work. But what we have to see is that when we just operate from that perspective, it leads to, we can see why why it leads to an empty and hollow culture. And, And some great wisdom on this matter, John Mackey, he's the CEO of Whole Foods, he says this very well. He says, making high profits is the means to the end of fulfilling Whole Foods' core business mission. We want to improve the health and well-being of everyone on the planet through higher quality foods and better nutrition. And we can't fulfill this mission unless we're highly profitable. High profits are necessary to fuel our growth across the United States and the world. Just as people cannot live without eating, so a business cannot live without profits. But here's the kicker. But most people don't live to eat and neither must a business live just to make profits. I think that is so key and is so wise in understanding how we should approach our bottom line. So profits still matter, but they're not everything. As I mentioned earlier, many economists have advocated for this multi-layered bottom line. And one such advocate for this model, his name is Bruno Roche, and he's the chief economist for uh, the Mars, Mars Incorporated, which, you know, Mars, M&Ms, now I got your attention. Um, And he shares this very helpful insight in reflecting on this multi-layered bottom line. He says this, this work represents the beginnings of a new business model that has the potential to challenge the modern belief in the pursuit of profit as an end in itself by aligning profitability with a more sustainable and holistic approach to business activity. That, that really actually gives me hope. I know it's kind of, it seems like this really like high, heady, like economic statement, but that gives me hope in seeing that there are companies, there are people that want to see their work, not just from the perspective of being profitable and building financial capital, but they want to build human capital, social capital, environmental capital. Another excellent example of this is the company Johnson & Johnson and their business philosophy is phenomenal. They, they clearly see the need and value of, of creating a, a fair return to their stockholders. They want to be profitable, but they refer to it as a final responsibility. They say, this is our final responsibility that comes after our obligations to doctors, nurses, patients, employees, and the community. That is a company that loves their neighbors. 
That yes, they want to be profitable, but first they, they want to care for the doctors, nurses, employees, and community that they're called to. That is a company, whether they realize it or not, loves their neighbor. And you see, God loves this kind of work. He loves when work is done in this way because it considers the needs of other, others. And he loves this work not simply because it is a profitable means of doing business. Many people are, are noticing that. But it's, he loves it because it is honoring to him and it reflects his nature. Proverbs 14, 31 shows us this, that whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker because that poor man is made in his image. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. If I could commend just one book uh, that I, I read in preparation for this message, is a book called Business for the Common Good uh, by Kenman Wong and Scott Ray. And I, they, they offer some very helpful insights in how we connect the dots between what we do, whether paid or unpaid, in the home, outside the home, and how it serves to love our neighbors. And they say this, business must continually act in ways that contribute to human flourishing. Products and services should primarily involve the lives of users Improve the lives of users and the broader community. Humans are to be treated with dignity because we are made in God's image and have eternal value. Creation should be responsibly stewarded because God made nature and desires that humans live in harmony with it and because it affects our well-being. Because God cares for the marginalized, global economic structures and more immediate business decisions must be scrutinized to make sure we don't trample on the heads of the voiceless. Now that sounds great on paper, and it may be this really motivational message like, yeah, that sounds great, I love this, but, but how do we turn this into action? How, how do we connect the dots? And, and let me just offer a few questions for us all that, that I think can speak to all of us in our areas of influence for us to consider. And so, so the first question is this, do we treat the people that we work alongside and work for with integrity, respect, and dignity. Think of the people that you, starting in your own home, maybe thinking of your, of your classmates, the people that you work with and for, do we treat them with integrity, respect, and dignity? Second, do our products and services promote human flourishing? Do our products and services promote human flourishing? Or is there something about what I'm doing that is actually making life more difficult for people, more harmful for people, or is what I'm doing actually promoting human flourishing? Third, would we trade places with employees, classmates, customers, suppliers, and others we work with? And I think this question is, is asked really to kind of get us thinking about what other people do, to place ourselves in their shoes, one, so that we might appreciate what they do, but two, so that we might see, is there something about your work that is dehumanizing to you? And is there something I can do to make that different? And lastly, are we proud to share how we worked at the end of every day with our friends and family? Are you proud to say that what you did, how you did it, and why you did it, are you proud to say that to your friends and family at the end of the day? If God is our boss, then we must see work in terms of being more than just a paycheck, more than just a bottom line, more than a job title. What we will find when we live and work in this way is that our work can be our means of loving our neighbor instead of this endless audition before these unsympathetic and unforgiving audiences from whom we're trying to validate our existence. Our work can be a means of loving our neighbors rather than the steps that I take to prove that I am worthy of being here and I matter. Imagine, I mean, just imagine for me, with me for a second, 
Imagine if God had one bottom line. Imagine if God only cared about how productive you were, how, how much you made, how much you contributed, and that was it. And that's how he measured your worth, and that's how he determined how much love and mercy and grace he extended to you. What if that's how we viewed God and our relationship to him? And some of us have this interaction with God that, that we think, once I accomplish this, then God will love me. Once I get to this status, then I will have the acceptance from God that I'm hoping for. Yes, we do work for God ultimately, but I want to be really clear that God is first and foremost not interested in having you relate to him as a boss. He wants to relate to you as a father first and foremost. And we have to understand that. I know that I've been saying that God is our boss, but he first and foremost wants us to relate to him as a father. And this, this is the good news of the gospel. That God has come not to get us to be in a relationship with him based upon how effective we are, how involved we are, how good we are, but that our right standing with him is based on the work of Christ and Christ alone. That changes the way we look at ourselves and our work. It changes the way we interact and engage in God in this relationship. You see, the good news of the gospel shows us that, that while an employee must validate her, her place in the job by her work and how good and how productive she is, a daughter has no need to engage in such activity to validate her place in the family because she's a part of the family already. She doesn't have to prove it. Look again, lastly, with, in Colossians 3, that Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We are to work heartily unto the Lord, but notice what we receive. We receive an inheritance. Who receives inheritances? Employees don't receive inheritances from their bosses. Bosses give their employees paychecks because they worked for it. It is sons and daughters that receive inheritances from their father. Not because of what they've done, but purely because of the basis of the relationship which means that all you are and all that you do and all that you have cannot convince God to love you any more or any less, that your right standing with him is all based upon the work of Christ and Christ alone. We don't have to live and work for lesser audiences for, the, for their approval because we are living for the approval of our audience of one who has made the access to him possible. If you are in Christ not only are you freed from the burden of having to establish your worth and identity and significance in what you do, you are adopted into the family as sons and daughters. For in Christ, we are no longer slaves or employees. We are family who no longer have to prove their place in the family, but can now join in, so to speak, the family business in working for the common good of all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you desire to relate to us as Father. And Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to see that truth, that if we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters who have access to you because of the status of our, of our place in the family, Lord. And I pray for those, Lord, who are outside of your family, that they would see and hear the good news that, that freedom awaits those who come to Christ and say, nothing in my hand I bring but simply to your cross I cling to, to receive forgiveness, to receive acceptance, to receive life everlasting. Lord, would you use this to motivate and change the way in which we look at our work and contribution in the world that we might seek to do good to others for the glory of your name.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.